Good morning. This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast. And today we're really fortunate to have Mark Newhall. He's the founder and CEO of Execution Specialist Group, ESG. And I was going to go through a lengthy introduction, but he was most recently recognized, and I thought I would take and, and let him talk about the recognition and what it means to him. Mark, thanks for taking the time. Well, thanks, Bob. Uh, yeah, Forbes uh, in 2016 uh, surprised us, actually, with uh, recognizing ESG as one of America's best management consulting practices. And uh, was kind of a surprise to us. We didn't apply for it. We didn't even know it particularly existed um, in the myriad of Forbes lists and so forth that get put out. But what was really interesting about it was, uh, you know, the, the way they went about identifying these companies. And it was through talking to some of the largest companies in the United States around, you know, who are the the big firms that you use uh, when looking for advice and support and advisory services? And then who are those uh, boutique firms that you really count on? And they make their first pass through. And apparently we came up uh, enough for where they said, uh, we want to go deeper and understand kind of who this firm is. And they go back to the clients that uh, we've worked with and talk a lot about the value that, um, we deliver and, and how they work with us and so forth. Uh, and then they go talk to our peers. Uh, what are your thoughts on working with these ESG and uh, their people and, and the value that they deliver? And uh, they, I think they had roughly a dozen or so categories uh, and ours was on business strategy and uh, uh, they named somewhere, I think it was around 15 or so uh, companies. And so we were really proud to make that list in 16 and uh, to make it again in uh, the spring of 17. Uh, so really great job by our people and uh, kind of a big deal for them to be recognized for their work. You know, it, we were chatting before the show and you talked a little bit about pre-ESG road that you traveled. Let's dig into a little bit about your time prior to ESG. So I, uh, not to sound like, uh, you know, what's the first thing you remember as a child, but <laughs> sometimes it feels that way. Um you know, worked in a, a very small office supply retail store in high school uh, back in the, the mid-80s. And that was before Staples and before Superstores and before the Internet and fax machines and email and things like that. And I uh, just learned pretty early on in, in school and in working for uh, this business services company um, how businesses operated and, and how you could, as a partner to them, bring value through the products and services. We sold typewriters and early Wang word processors and um, Canon photocopiers and all kinds of other you know, printing services and so forth. And, um, you know, stayed with that in high school, stayed with that after high school, became a full commissioned uh, outside salesperson, a sales manager, uh, and then uh, found my way to uh, a national company that had a smaller uh, operation in, in Boston that uh, shortly after I joined the company, uh, Corporate Express, which was founded here in Colorado in 86, they were in the process of going public. They were intending to use the, the proceeds from that uh, public offering to begin acquiring uh, small and regional office products companies. And uh, we were basically their first foray into uh, Boston and kind of northern New England area. And at, uh, at 25, I, I became, I think at the time, their youngest division president. Uh, it wasn't of anything particularly impressive. It was a very small $6 million division of what was a very fast-growing company. And um, they taught me at that kind of young age how to move in from 
uh, kind of sales management to general management, and then you know how do you go buy companies? And uh, spent a lot of time on the deal team in the mid '90s, and went back to Boston. We bought nine companies, uh, just over 100 million dollars worth of revenue in about 18 months. And then uh, the responsibility and, and the action around how do you put those nine companies together? Previous competitors, a lot of overlap with sales, product, facilities, fleets, uh, compensation programs, all those kinds of things, and found that that was probably the most fun that I had had to that point. And uh, we sold the company in 99 to a Dutch firm, got a new CEO, he made the rounds, he came back to me after that and he said, you know, I've been all over the country and uh, here in Boston, you've done a really exceptional job of creating the culture we want, deploying the systems, the processes we want, pulling these nine companies together. Um, it's really a model we want to repeat, and why don't you come join my team? And uh, so for the next 10 years, uh, I lived kind of on an airplane uh, worldwide. The company, uh, through that same period, uh, completed close to 600 acquisitions, 28 countries, 40,000 people. Uh, many, many different lines of business and really trying to create a, a global value proposition for, uh, you know, business customers and businesses out there. So, um, you know, built a large internal consultancy that, uh, you know, we were the people that were there the, the day the deal closed. We were the ones that were uh, rationalizing the distribution footprint and putting the distribution systems and warehouse systems and order management systems in place and sunsetting the old stuff, training the workforce on new things. Um, and uh, when that work was done, it was, okay, how do you, how do we keep these competencies and take, uh, take on the tough projects? You know, early days CRM with companies like salesforce.com. We were one of their first enterprise customers um, and first people to bring it into uh, a contact center. Um, how do we consolidate 30 different, you know, uh, customer service centers in, in the mid 2000s, um, you know, not disrupt the customer experience? Uh, how do you certify the company with an ISO 9001, 2000 quality systems? We, we did that. And then I spent a few years in uh, Amsterdam uh, working for our European president, eventually the chairman of the company, um, really driving uh, not so much uh, the strategy of the company, but how do we execute and align uh, the company worldwide to the tenets of the strategy? Uh, so uh, finished up in 2008, it was quite a, the end of a ride, 15 years from that, or those early days of the IPO and roughly 40 to $50 million in revenue to a sale to Staples at eight and a half billion and, and a whole lot bigger 15 years later and uh, felt really proud of the, the work we did to build a world-class company and something that is uh, a big part today still of uh, what Staples is all about. I think about the, the day after, right, the deal's done. And you go, I've been doing this 15 years. What was going through your mind that next morning? When Staples bought the company? It was funny. I had been hundreds of times over the person that uh, just found out their company got bought. And immediately you start worrying about my job and my benefits and my time and my contributions and my compensation and all those kinds of things. And there I was, that person, for the very first time mm -hmm. and the only time in, in my career. And I think I had a, a rough 10 minutes. <laughs> and, and then I kind of sat back and, uh, you know, Staples was tremendously fair. They were very, you know, transparent. Uh, you know, hey... You're the strategy guy. Um, we didn't buy your strategy. 
Um, you know, we need to kind of clear out, you know, the, what, what got us here, it's what we bought, but we want to take it to a different place. And so I, I was able to rationalize that pretty well. And, and I looked at the 15 years of, we built a hell of a company. Uh, you know, the people that I got to work with over those years and hundreds of leaders and lots of executives and um, investors and so forth. And it, I was kind of like, if you stepped back a bit and you said, gosh, in 15 years from concept to, you know, one of the world's biggest companies that does what we do, um, I was really proud of it. And I looked at it as kind of this just giant project because mm -hmm. that's what I had lived in for so long. Um, and uh, uh, really had no intention of starting a business. I just kind of said, gosh, it's been a ride. I'm going to sit back and, and take some time and, and figure out what's next. You know, and, and so th there's that period of time and travel and entertain yourself and figure out that you're not having to be somewhere until you choose. And then you get the thought process to start ESG. You know, and, and I was, I actually, I thought the, the execution strategy group, that struck me. And, and I think that says a lot about exactly what you had in mind to do. Talk about the thought process of getting ready to go back out and start ESG? You know, it's interesting. Um, I have to admit, I did not have uh, an aha moment. I did not sit back and say, okay, I've got an idea. I need to write a business plan. I need to write a pro forma. I need to go find investors. I didn't do any of that. I was, I took a month <laughs> after finishing in Europe that summer of 08, and I, I got on my motorcycle and I, I rode about 4,500 miles all around the Pacific Northwest and came back and I said, okay, that was fun. And uh, now it's September of 08. And I said, I'm going to go down to that timeshare I bought in Mexico and never used because I was working too much and played a bunch of golf and was down there for a few weeks and had a voicemail in October uh, while I was in Mexico. And it was uh, kind of this quiet voice on the phone. And uh, the person introduced himself and said, that my name is Frank and I know uh, this person at Corporate Express. It's on a board with me. And uh, I run a food service company. We've made some acquisitions. And uh, we need to put them together. We're not sure where to start. And uh, we thought you might have some insights for us. And I, I really didn't do anything with the voicemail for a few days. And I uh, found myself in an internet cafe. These times are different. Uh, we didn't have our <laughs> smartphones then. Um, on a beach in Mexico, and I, I looked up who this person was and who the company was, and he was the, the CEO of the largest food service company in Canada. And uh, I called him back quickly. <laughs> <laughs> and he invited me to their U.S. headquarters. Uh, I flew from Mexico through Denver, got a suit, went up and saw these guys. I really didn't know what I was getting myself into. And it, I, the whole discussion was, why don't you join our team as an employee? And I had a real sense of resisting that because all I had ever known was pens and pencils and office products and things like that. And uh, it was very flattering. It was a just tremendously impressive company, 100 years old, fourth generation, family owned, family managed. Uh, I got to meet uh, the CEO, the chairman, some board members. And uh, I just reiterated, I, I don't think I need to join as an employee because I won't bring you know, expertise in your business. And they were quick to say, you know, it's, we got plenty of people around here that know the business. What we need is some expertise and, you know, how, you know, where do we start putting this together and where do we do it in a way that's thoughtful for our customers and our people. And I, I really respected how just caring they were about that. And I said, well, I said, why don't, 
why don't I just come in and take a look? They said, great, you can be a consultant. We don't like consultants, but we'll let you be one. <laughs> and, uh, and so the, the name of the company was literally right around Thanksgiving. I was on the Secretary of State's website and you know, paid my $25 and searched some names. And <laughs> I thought, well, when it comes down to if you're going to have a consultant, what did I value having bought $100 million worth of consulting at Corporate Express over the years? I valued an ability to execute, not a firm that would tell me, here's what you should do. It had a place. But I was always interested in third-party support that could actually help me go get it done, could fill in the gaps where I don't have the expertise. And so I came up with that name. It was kind of a mouthful. Uh, execution specialist group kind of scares everybody. Um, so we shortened it to ESG. But we love the question today, mm-hmm. 10 years later, you know, what does it mean? And people kind of have an aha moment. You know, when you get down to it, you know, strategy isn't much of anything without an ability to execute. And so the name has actually served us well over the years, but uh, that's kind of how it started. And it was about, I would say, five days into that engagement with that first client where that's where I had my aha moment. And I said, you know, having sitting with their executive team, looking at the challenges, very familiar, you know, P&L, client, distribution, you know, challenges that I had faced for many years on the operating side of the business. But then this aspiration to, you know, but we've got to get after it. We've got way too many systems. Our customers are confused. It's expensive. Um, where do we dig in? And and I realized there's a business here. And the skill sets that I have and that people that had worked with me uh, had would potentially be really valuable. So we went kind of all in with that, that first client. And uh, they were a client for seven years on all kinds of different things. Uh, and it felt very much like the work we had done at Corporate Express. And it's just a fine, fine company. You know, I, I think about that. So you're, you're doing the consulting and you're able to look top down and, and dig in. What was the decision to add folks to your sure. company? It was interesting. We would sit, they gave me a seat at their table. They were, they were very generous, you know, to, um, hey, listen to the leaders of the business, you know, immerse in it. They were touring me through warehouses and I was riding with their drivers. I was meeting their customers. It was fascinating for me to uh, all of a sudden, for the very first time, to be in a different industry, but to see the the commonality and so forth. And anyway, they would, uh, you know, they'd have me sit in on their leadership team meetings, and uh, I would observe. I, I would do my part when we were talking about integration. But uh, I remember on more than one occasion, the CEO kind of nudging me. He'd have me sit next to him. He'd say, "Well, you've been listening to this problem for twenty minutes. What would you do?" <laughs> Smart guy, kind yeah. of thing. And. Uh, and I said, well, you know, I would probably get someone that actually knows how to either get you out of the situation you're in or, or could bring some outside perspective. And it kind of would fall on the table. It was really quiet. And I remember saying, well, do you know anybody? And, uh, well, sure. And, and that was the time. Now it was the first quarter of 2009. Staples was taking cost out, as often happens after an acquisition. And a lot of the costs were, you know, that 120-person team that I had built inside of Corporate Express, uh, those people were suddenly available, as were many people in the first quarter of 2009. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I was able to attest to that client, here's a person that I've worked with for 10 years, and Mm -hmm. this is where they've dealt with that sort of problem before. And uh, I can attest to their ability to take a look at this problem and, and give you a sense of what you might want to think about uh, and potentially actually help you get through it. And uh, that first time we did that is exactly how we deploy resources today. 
10 years later. It's, uh, it's really the same model. And, and so we started to grow first through bringing on, uh, I think there were five or six people from uh, Corporate Express Staples and uh, brought them into ESG. Just about every one of them is still with the firm today. Uh, it's our leadership team. And uh, they brought a tremendous amount of, what I found was appealing was a tremendous amount of been there, done that mm-hmm. experience early on. Um, and, and also, those same people I was selecting, the reason we had selected them at Corporate Express to join our integration team in the first place was they were what I like to call kind of board operators. They were really good at operating businesses, but they loved all that transformation and that mm-hmm. kind of chaos that we lived through at Corporate Express with all those acquisitions. And so they they would go in and optimize a business or a function and then kind of look around for, so what's next? Where's the next hard problem? Mm-hmm. And ESG became a great platform for those types of people to uh, uh, to live in because our clients, as the client base started to expand and the industries that we worked in started to expand, um, familiar problems, unfamiliar territory, but the ability to make a difference quickly. And and that you know that's the common thing that all of our people today uh, kind of have, uh, I think, in their DNA is that love of uh, fast pace, a lot of change, uh, optimization. You know, how do we really drive performance uh, in a particular business through a particular problem? We were talking before the show a little bit, and we've talked about the acquisition and mergers side of the house. And you also talked about um, transformation. So before we get too far down the road, I always ask is, you know, what's your business and who you serve? You've talked a lot about it, but maybe we focus toward that transformational work that you guys are doing as you describe what you guys do. I think that... uh, you look at the types of companies that we work with, um, they have also in their DNA uh, growth through acquisition. Mm-hmm. They've, they've been built in, in distant past through combining companies. You know, Walmart's a good example where they're not necessarily acquisitive today, but built their business on a tremendous amount of acquisition and consolidation through the years. Um, we've got clients that uh, aspire to be acquisitive and uh, they're getting ready for, you know, if we're going to go write big checks for big companies, what's that playbook look like? And, you know, how do we make sure we don't squander the investment or disrupt the business? Um, and we have other customers that um, have have just recently made an acquisition and they need to get after uh, making certain that they hit their synergy targets and to whatever they committed to the street, the investor community, the private equity firm, whatever that is. Um, so so a lot of our, our action, if you will, is in that immediate M&A or post-M&A environment. But the transformation work, which sure, it's part of M&A integration, but we also have these clients that they haven't bought anyone in 10 years, 15 years. But they maybe didn't get through the acquisition uh, or the integration work quite right back when they, they did the work. They perhaps have become a house of brands. And as margins are under pressure, as uh, economic headwinds take their toll, as the business landscape changes, as pressures come from new competitors, uh, we all know who those are, um, you know, they they have to actually go back and reconcile and rationalize redundant systems, redundant platforms, uh, master data, master product data, our big kind of uh, leftover, holdover uh, challenges for companies. And... Um, they, they make a decision often after a strategic review or a new leadership team or a new CEO comes in and uh, they say, it's it's time. Uh, it's time for us to get after this. 
Uh, we, we have to deliberately get after it. We have to make the investment to get after it. And, and those are our best clients, the ones that realize uh, we don't want to live on four warehouse management systems uh, forever. We can't afford it. We can't run our business like a franchise. We can't deploy best practice uh, when we have to interpret a concept four different ways across a network that might be 50 distribution centers. And so that's the work that, that we do is, is you know, understanding, you know, how to select the one that will survive and then how to move the, uh, all of those systems uh, from the other three, for example, into that one. Uh, and again, always thinking about not disrupting customers, not disrupting business performance. If you had a prototypical client and you're brought in by referral or however you come into the company and says, we have a particular challenge, what's your typical approach or steps to identify and then start to execute the solution? Yeah. So one of the things that we have developed over the years of our work, both at ESG and, and at Corporate Express, was really, a, a, for lack of a better term, a success framework. So once we have earned a, or developed a rapport with that senior executive sponsor, we, we shift the conversation to, uh, we often call it a little bit of the Colombo approach. It's, it's, would you agree then that success of whatever it is to which you aspire would include these types of things. And it's transparency, it's alignment, it's clear governance and decision-making, it's predictable plans, it's disciplined execution, it's repeatable results where necessary, um, it's playbooks, it's things like that. And every executive nods their head and says, absolutely. We then take it a step further and say, then we have a success framework that uh, really, we can filter your aspiration through. And, and really, the early stages of all of our engagements, and, and they run anywhere from a, a short time of four weeks to, on the long side, 90 days, where our team comes in and immerses with the client's team. And we, we have in front of us as our compass and our guide that success framework. And we then start pouring into that uh, artifacts, decisions, org strengths, weaknesses, charts, uh, policy process, uh, assumptions, financials, all those types of things into that framework. And, and we interview people. We assess those artifacts. We, we bring it back here to Denver to ESG, and we let our whole team take a look at it and say, okay, we understand the objective. We understand what it takes to be highly successful because of our, uh, our track record and our work with so many companies. How does this customer, how does this particular company um, stack up against that. And then we reflect back to that client and it's really, it's this assessment work to say, here's where you're hitting on all cylinders. Great job. Well done. You're going to get the results you want in these areas. Here's, here's kind of some gray area where you either haven't thought about this too much. Your people maybe haven't done this before. Um, where your assumptions may be a little bit back of the envelope, uh, versus really well thought through, and, and then to more of the extreme where we see planning taking place in functional vacuums, where transportation, for example, assembles a, a consolidation or an integration or a synergy plan that doesn't take into account, you know, systems and, and end of life for those systems and what IT might be planning, or doesn't take into account uh, distribution center consolidation or when leases end or when third-party logistic contracts end. So when we, and that's the most dangerous thing, when assumptions have been made and you're at the start line of a major initiative and that cross-functional vetting and pressure testing hasn't taken place. So the output of our first stage of an engagement is typically 
if you agree on the success framework, and now we've taken that in-depth look at what you have and what you have prepared and what you're ready to go do, and here are the holes. And, and here are uh, really our recommendations as to how to fill those gaps. And it could be people, it could be take a step back, go a little bit slower to go a whole lot faster. Um, it, it could be uh, resources, it could be changing some assumptions, it could be communicating with the board, whatever it is, it's a lot easier to make those changes, those course correct or those trajectory and targeting changes at the beginning than it is once you get into it. And so at the end of that, you know, when we deliver that, I'd say about a third of our clients at that point say, thank you very much. You're going to help us make a different decision, a better decision. Um, or they often decide to do something completely different at that point. Um, or they say, thank you very much. And we, we recognize you are in good shape. You should go off and do your thing. But about two-thirds of our clients at that point say, okay, we want to make the course corrections. Help us with revising our roadmap. Help us look at strategic alternatives. Help us with the decision-making. It's really filling in that last mile of their strategy. And, and then can you actually bring some resources to bear back to those, those kinds of people we talked about that we brought in in the early days that have been there and done what we're trying to do? And can they supplement our execution team uh, to go out and make sure we stay within the rails, that we stay within the construct of uh, that success framework, and that we actually have the transparency we want, the predictable results to which we aspire, and so forth. And those engagements, after that initial stage, can last anywhere from three months to, in some cases, on really large-scale integrations, three years, four years. Um, we're, we're, we're right there with that client uh, the whole way through. You know, I think about that for continuity and accountability, both important. Well, we're going to go into part of the, the chat here where um, I quiz you to death, and that's kind of fun. Um, for you, many are avid readers. And what's the most recent book that um, has altered or influenced your behavior as a CEO? So I'm not a big consumer of uh, what I would call self-help books. Um, and, and I'm not sure why, maybe I should be a, big, a bigger one. Uh, but I have, I discovered, uh, he's an author, a speaker, a consultant. His name is Alan Weiss. Uh, I've never met him. I need to at some point. He, uh, he's based up in Rhode Island. Um, but you know, he's built a, a tremendous consulting practice. He's authored, I, I, I want to say it's somewhere around 50 or 60 or so books. Maybe he'll hear this one day and correct me. <laughs> but he's um, he's kind of a right-up-in-your-face guy. Um, and I think consultant and speaker, uh, I, I follow him on Twitter. He's one of the few people I, I look forward to what's he coming up with today and so forth. And um, there's actually two books. One is The Foundation of Our Practice. And he wrote that book many, many years ago. It was a book that I found probably a year into ESG. And it was just, it's the title, it's, it's more like a workbook. It's called Value-Based Fees. It's all about selling the value of what we do versus selling a rate. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a book that we give to every single person that starts at ASG. Um, and it's all about selling the value of what we do. So that's, that's kind of one end of the spectrum. His most recent book is called Lifestorming. And he wrote it with uh, Marshall Goldsmith. And I love the style of the book. It's kind of management fables. And Marshall is a bit of the, uh, I think, academic and intellectual who says, here's kind of the human behavior bit about whatever problem you might be facing as a business owner. And then um, Alan chimes in with, 
almost that, that fable example of, so I had a client once and here's exactly the, the recommendation or the practice of the theory in motion and what it means. And the book is, it's a very easy read, but it, I, I love it because you can remember so much of the takeaway. One of the things I, I read in it just, uh, I don't know, probably three or four months ago, I just finished it, um, was, you know, as a small business owner, I always kind of felt like, gosh, I don't want to call necessarily call strangers, people that aren't in my network and tell them about what we want to do. And maybe someone will refer me and maybe I'll wait for that next referral and so forth. And we've been blessed by, by tremendous referrals in our network and so forth. But, you know, we also have to knock on those doors cold. And, and this particular chapter was, you know, the premise of it was, is it more problematic to think you're arrogant if you call a stranger and tell them what you're great at? Or is it more arrogant to sit there and think your phone's going to ring? And Alan kind of slaps you around a bit <laughs> as you read the book. And I just, uh, I've taken pieces of it. I've shared it with my team. I've, I've given out a bunch of copies of it. Uh, for anybody that's kind of questioning, I think, the value of what they have to offer others, um, whether personally or professionally or in a business like ours, it's just a, it's a great read. Um, and it's, it's very, I find it to be very practical. Um, and it's, it's been good for our business and good for me. That'll be interesting when you meet the guy. One day. I send him notes. He replies. <laughs> I, need to, I need to call him and say I want to meet you. <laughs> you know, in, in looking back over your career to date, uh, failures occur periodically. And is there a notable failure in the past that you think has really helped you be successful at this point? I think a lot of how I've learned about my business from others is I may not necessarily know what you should do, but I can definitely tell you what not to do. Um, you know, we've had, we've been fortunate on the client engagement side where I don't know that we've had failures so much as um, changes in direction that are unanticipated, often from the client, um, where they they decide to do something different, they, they lose a customer, they breach a bank covenant, you know, whatever, uh, those kinds of things. I think that in the beginning... When I came out of Corporate Express, we, we had, as I mentioned, 120 or so people dedicated to all these complex projects around when you buy a company, you know, real estate, HR, sales, go-to-market, customer service, IT. And so coming out of Corporate Express, I had a little bit of, uh, well, we could do anything. <laughs> and, I, and nothing really scared me. And I, I had a, a bit of a chip on my shoulder about, yeah, we've seen it before. What do we got to do? I know who to go wrestle up and put on this project and so forth. And then I found when you start a business, you cast a very wide net because you don't want to limit yourself because, you know, all of a sudden I went from having a great corporate job and benefits and, you know, a 401k and all those kinds of things. I don't have that anymore. So you're careful not to limit. Um, but as, you know, as we go into our 10th year this year, I feel like uh, the thing we do better now that we didn't do as well the first four or five years was being very specific about what we're really good at and saying no to the things that, you know, we're probably okay at them, but we're not awesome at them. And uh, I think, you know, and I don't know that I would have cast any different net earlier, but I might've pulled it in faster uh, because we have found ourselves in some engagements where uh, we're a little bit over our skis. We're not quite as crisp on some of the things I've, I've been talking about around post m &A integration or supply chain or, you know, sales effectiveness and so forth. And, you know, I had a client or prospective client just last week in Boston uh, who had read through some pre-material that we had sent, um, you know, very, very successful, very well-known private equity firm. And he, 
he, uh, about five minutes into our conversation, first time we met him, he said, I've read all your stuff. I get it. And I get that you can do a lot. I want to hire you for what you're really awesome at. And for me, that was a, a nice validation of what we've been thinking about these last mm-hmm. few years of, of be focused and, and have the confidence to say no. And also, you know, if you have to over-explain the value you bring to a prospective client, you know, put a limit on how much you're willing to do that. Because much more than two or three meetings of that, yeah, I think it's time to move on. In, in early stage, if I was advising someone starting up a similar business, get there as fast as you can. Mm-hmm. You know, with what is your core value proposition? What are you awesome at? The stuff on the edges will come back. It's important, but it's not going to help you close deals. And it's not going to help you in a closed deal uh, necessarily deliver results. You know, before I go too far down the road, if folks say, I really need to reach out to Mark, what's the best way for them to reach out to you in social media? Uh, social media, LinkedIn is probably the best way. Um, fairly active there. We've had a number of our engagements have come through there. People say, hey, are you still doing this? Because they've moved on to two or three companies. And so we keep things fairly up to date there. And We've got some publishing planned here in 18 that uh, we see LinkedIn as a very critical part of, you know, that platform to reach everyone in our network and so okay. forth. But, and your website uh, is? ESGimpact.com. Okay. All right. With all the stuff that you know, if you could teach a course or share an insight with your very best friend or colleague that was just starting a business, what would that course be and why? What's the business problem you're trying to solve? I mean, uh, you know, one of my hobbies of the last 10 years has become uh, an interest in startups. Not me starting up other businesses, but uh, I've invested time and money uh, in five different startups. I'm active with five right now. There have been a few others. Um, and they run the gambit. They're, they're mostly technology companies, and I'm, I don't fancy or you know, myself as a technologist. Um, but the biggest thing I bring to these companies is what's the problem you're solving? How disruptive will you be? How will it deliver value? Because there are a lot of smart people out there. There's a lot of data scientists. There's so much happening with AI and machine learning and blockchain and things like that. And I find often that uh, people get very excited about what they've created. And it does do something technical, better, faster, cheaper, uh, more effectively, more efficiently. But, you know, I live in a land of... You know, my, my weeks are full of uh, working with CEOs who are uh, and their leadership teams that are solving very, you know, right up in their grill, practical, I've got to figure this out now. And if you just come in and talk about a cool technology, um, you have to be able to put it into business terms. You know, what, what actually does this solve? And, um, and I find that in every one of those five that I work with, that's what they count on me for is you know, to be a bit of the spoiler on when we get to the business that ultimately will write the check for this technology, how are we couching it? How are we framing it? And boy, if you can't get to that answer quick, you really need to relook at, you know, what you're, what you're cooking up, what you're investing in, what you're making your life about in some cases. So, I mean, we talked a bit about this. Uh, what's the one initiative that you executed in the past few years that has helped your company most and elaborate how? So I have this legacy in, in my background of office products, which is, of course, riveting. Um, and uh, uh, we had done some work for Office Depot. They were our second client uh, outside of the first uh, the food service company I mentioned back in 2010. And uh, Office Depot bought Office Max in, 
2014, end of 2013, I believe. Um, and they asked us to come in and uh, take a look at the plans they had assembled with a very large consulting firm. They'd spent tens of millions of dollars planning uh, six months prior to close. Um, you know, a lot of organizational shakeup as that uh, deal was, was that transaction was closed. And um, had just an exceptional CEO that they brought in from the outside uh, who said uh, to the leadership team first, we're going to, we're going to actually pause on execution. We're going to figure out the leadership team is going to take us through this. Um, we're not going to have two people in an organizational box. Uh, there was kind of legendary that he, I think he told the, the 12 people from Depot and the 12 people from Max roughly that were on his team. Yeah, there's 24 of you today. It's the day after Thanksgiving. By Christmas, there's going to be 12 of you because we're not going to go through the battle of integration and, and guess about who's making a decision in the field. Mm-hmm. in the battlefield. And I thought, uh, I just so respect um, the way he ran that integration from the top down. So I think about the impact on our company. Here was an industry that I knew probably better than most and had been through more integration than anyone in either of those two companies, yet an outsider coming in and and orchestrating an integration approach that was probably the best I've ever seen. And, and not only were they a great client for us, and we had dozens of people working on it, so from a client size and contribution and revenue for ESG, our biggest client ever, without question, a uh, four-year engagement, um, over 40 different statements of work over that period of time, because I think we brought a lot of value. And they said, okay, you finished that, now move to this next thing, to this next thing. And it one, the benefit of the company was the financial uh, benefit that it brought to hire the very best people to invest in our brand, to focus our brand more, for me to come out of the day-to-day consulting and to focus more on uh, the business and and what we're going to be after Office Depot. Um, But I also got to witness up front one of the, I think, one of the best integrations of the last 10 years or so in that retail big box uh, space in an industry that, in a lot of ways, is a melting ice cube. I mean, how many office supplies are we all using today versus a year ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago? So um, we benefited tremendously from that engagement. I believe the client did, uh, and I know they did. They they recognized us as their integration partner of the year uh, with quotes and press releases of, you know, we couldn't have done it without you guys. And, and nothing was bigger for our people than that recognition. It was great. You were talking before... Uh, about working on the business instead of in the business and the evolution of your role at ESG. Can you elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, you know, that goes all the way back to that first client sitting in that room. And, you know, my my first engagement letter was something I cobbled together to say, okay, you're going to get Mark Newhall and here's the rate for Mark and here's what he's going to do. Uh, and I spent seven years in statements of work and with a a rate or a fee attached to my name and my work and my contributions to the client. And uh, it started to feel like I was back in a, we we call them around here, J-O-Bs, you know, (laughs) and uh, I didn't really want a job so much as uh, we wanted to build a firm. And, um, you know, I was fortunate and then I was able to, secure pretty significant fees for my contributions personally. Um, it's the scariest thing I've done in 10 years 
with the firm is to decide I don't want to take fees anymore. And so it's, it'll be three years in June that I invoiced my last fee um, to a client uh, for a, a principal engagement role. And um, so I went, you know, two and a half years ago from working in the business to deciding I want to work on it. I, I started to think about what are the, the equity builders of this business? We need a better uh, business development process. We need better IP. We need better playbooks. We need a better website. We need a better brand. Um, I need to get out and see more than just one customer at a time. And so the last three years for me have been all those things I just mentioned. And now my travel is, it's a little shorter. It's, uh, it's more kind of rapid fire. And I can go and see two or three of our clients or prospective clients in a matter of two or three days and, and share experiences of what we're seeing kind of across the spectrum of our work, what other companies are doing and so forth. And I, I'm really proud to, to say that I work, you know, on the business. That's really my job now is, uh, is not necessarily to be operational and not necessarily to be in that principal consultant chair, uh, being paid by the client to do a specific thing. Um, they pay our teams to do that. And, and I'm happy to participate with them. And, and, you know, the best question I get, and, and it, it's really flattering to me is when, I see those prospective clients or those active clients and they say, so Mark, you know, what are you seeing out there? Cause you go from company to company to company and that builds a bigger part of the business than I ever could being a consultant myself. You know, in, in thinking about some of the things that you've done over time, what's the most unusual habit or what others may consider out of the ordinary that's helped you or your company most? Yeah. You know, for me, I've, uh, when I was, I spent a lot of time as the youngest guy in the room, and, you know, at Corporate Express, at deals, at deal closings, you know, uh, board meetings and so forth. Um, in the Corporate Express days, you know, board members would come in and say, who's this guy down at the end of the table? And the CEO would say, well, that's Mark. You know, Mark does all the hard stuff that nobody else wants to do. <laughs> it was always this cross-functional, you know, morass of, of things around integration and systems and so forth. Um, but they were always mission critical to the company that it'd be done right. Um at, at really early in my career, I just, uh, I know this sounds trivial, but I just took a lot of notes. I'd write everything down. I'd be the guy, I'd be the only guy in the room writing everything down. I, and I have just developed this thing. When I go into a meeting, the first thing I do, I, I, and you can look, all these pages look the same. There's thousands of them at this point. It's who's in the meeting? Where are we meeting? What's the topic? Um, and I've got my own little kind of crazy shorthand as to, yeah, what's being said but also, you know, what are the actions? That's pretty common. But I, I also have a way of saying, you know, with a particular shorthand, well, that doesn't make any sense. Or that's preposterous. Or that's a great idea. And, you know, I, I near term, always go back to those notes. And that becomes the work we do or the actions we take and so forth. But I've had this habit of collecting these notebooks for close to 25 years. And we were talking earlier, I've got a cabinet full of them. And it's kind of funny. It's, it's whenever we move, I'll go into the cabinet and I'll take the books out again and put them in the box and I'll pick one up from, you know, 1997 or 2012 or whatever. And, and I, it's uncanny, but I can flip that open and I can look at where did we meet? What were we talking about? Who was the, the stakeholder or who was the client and who was there? And it's funny in a way the meeting comes back to me and, um, you know, in a very real and vibrant way, because 
that's where I was learning. That's where I was taking it in. In the beginning of my career, I was learning how to do what I do. And later now, it's how do you develop insights that are meaningful for clients? Um, but uh, it is a little quirky. Uh, I think sometimes our clients are surprised to see the, the leader of ESG as the guy writing everything down. But um, it keeps us on point. It keeps us in the details. Our, our customers, our clients expect us to be in those details. And um, uh, those books are going to be good for a book. Someday. <laughs> or, two. <laughs> or two. Or two. There's a lot there. So. <laughs> what advice would you offer to a new CEO assuming the role of CEO for the first time? So a first-time CEO, and I think it's an important distinction versus I've been brought in because I've done this four or five times. Yes. Uh, so to the first-time CEO, I think listening and engendering support is important. I don't think it needs to go on forever. I don't think it should go on forever. But where um, I've seen people elevated from within or someone that's been in an operating capacity and they move to another company and it is their first first time in that chair, um, you know, taking those those tours, you know, meeting the staff, listening, and, and giving it enough time to develop a perspective that's informed. When you then have a bit of whatever you want to call it, simply a coming out event, where you then say, hey, you know, it's been a month, it's been three months, here's what I've learned. Here's where we're strong, here's where we're weak. Here's what we are, here's what we're going to be. To do that too early and to do it when you're uninformed, I'm the one that listens to all the people when they come out of that auditorium and go, this person is either, I wanna follow them and I'm really excited and they took the time, or they've got their head up their ass, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and they, they don't know what we do. They don't understand. They don't see the real problems. And, and it largely is, if not downhill, it's at a minimum really disruptive mm -hmm. for some period of time. So I think those great CEOs have an ability to really evolve the target and the vision, and they spend time listening. And then the next activity is aligning. The best organizations are the ones that are aligned to a particular target. And, and again, our, we were talking about military stories earlier. You know, if, and everybody says it, there's the hill we gotta go climb. Well, if everybody's not sure that's the hill, it's chaos. Yeah. And if everybody's not sure of their role towards getting there, that's chaos. And it happens in, in businesses where there's great alignment, there's disciplined execution, there's transparency, there's predictability, there's limited surprises, there's, there's commitment to the mission. When alignment degrades, you know, it's, uh, Doubt creeps in. Mm -hmm. Uncertainty is there. Um, you know, the, the kingdoms, the silos start to evolve, you know, and when, when alignment degrades even further, um, you know, it, it's crippled execution. It's, it's unpredictability. It's chaos. And so I think that new CEO, that's what they need to be kind of looking toward is, is how do I understand it? How do I gain credibility? How do I set the vision or, or reaffirm the vision based on what I've learned? And then how do I ensure alignment and begin moving quickly? Um, that's what I would tell someone. That's a bunch. That's, that's a that's, lot. That's, that's, but that's great <laughs> stuff. So. For, for you, what is the most common misconception about you or your role as CEO at ESG? Um, I think sometimes we might look a little bigger than we are, uh, whether that's a website or you look at the kinds of clients. And we've been so fortunate to work with 
just some amazing companies and yeah, brands. Yeah, we, we talked about those. That was uh, Caesars Entertainment, uh, Gordon Food Service, Office Depot, Office Max, Staples, Target, Whole Foods, and more. So, yeah, yeah we've we've worked with. We've had about 60 clients in our nine years, and, and I think most people would recognize well more than half mm-hmm. uh, or do business with them. And we just, we've been very fortunate uh, that way. So I think sometimes our, uh, our value prop, it makes great sense to those large companies. Um, when we go down market a bit, uh, private equity held firms, uh, startups, uh, you know, here in Denver, it's just such an amazing business community. and startups and there's young people here and there's uh it's just an exciting business community sometimes you know people get very excited about the company we are and whether it's forbes recognition or our foundation or whatever we're doing and then they say but you only work with large companies and it's kind of a little bit of a 50-yard dash 40-yard gym sort of thing Mm -hmm. and uh and and so that's it's where we have to be careful because it's it's actually where I like to spend a lot of time with, as I mentioned, startups and mm-hmm. entrepreneurs and so forth. Um, you know, it's it's people thinking either we're unapproachable or we're just living in this this huge land of massive companies. Um, we want to be part of the business community. We want to give back. Uh, we want to participate and advise and invest and in, in those types of things. So it's uh, you know it's hard to be everything to everybody. I don't, and I know that's not what we should aim for, but, you know, kind of striking that balance sometimes is, uh, can be a bit of a challenge. Well, the best thing they can do is call. That's right. Find out. We like that. Absolutely. You know, over the past three years or so, what would or should you have said no to? You know, my, and I'm hesitating because it's the same things rolling around in my head. It's, it's client sponsorship. There have been times we've taken on engagements where we've said, well, the sponsorship's not as good as it should be but we'll get them there. And then we don't get them there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we look for that uh, change champion. Mm-hmm. We look for the person that has the juice inside the client where the sponsorship from a board or a CEO for a particular person, and it usually is a person, to say, I'm going to lead this change. It's going to be hard and it's going to be cross-functional. It's going to be disruptive. Um, but it's worth the journey. That's the person we want signing our engagement letters. Um, we, we've had in our past uh, an aspiration to all those things, but that person or group, in some cases, either the funding hasn't been there or the real commitment hasn't been there. And we get in and it um, you get 30 days in, you get 60 days in, and the appetite for what needs to be done really isn't there. Mm. And uh, it's it's not so bad for us because we can typically just extract from that. And we've never had problems over we're not going to pay for it or anything like that. But it's particularly disruptive for the client because they've generally gone on record and said, we're going to go do this. And for whatever reason, they say, no, now we're not going to do that. Um, that's That's hard on everybody. And so sponsorship... For me, just being unyielding on uh, the commitment to change and and that you can kind of trace that support to other key stakeholders in the organization. Um, that's important. In the day-to-day operation of your company as CEO, what's your personal habit or self-talk dialogue that keeps you and the company focused? 
I don't like doing a whole lot in the afternoon. <laughs> I, um, I'm a very early morning person. I am up at 4.30 every day. Uh, I'm at the gym at 5. I am at it at 6 o'clock. I get most of my work done. Uh, you know, that's busy work probably by the time I get into the office at 8. Um, you know, a lot of our work just for – we don't do as much work in the West Coast. It tends to be more – uh, Midwest and, and East Coast. So with time differences and so forth, we tend to wrap uh, earlier in the day. Um, so I, I look to kind of really pack the mornings and the early afternoons and then wind it out um, and let people get to whatever else they need to be doing and so forth, um, you know, in the afternoon. I think it's, uh, I don't know if that's quirky or or, or what, but I, I also just... Uh, I encourage short meetings. I encourage meetings where you don't sit down. <laughs> you know, it's what do you need? Get to the punchline. You know, I, I tell many people I am, I'm pretty good with the the joke. Tell me the punchline first, and I'll mm -hmm. ask questions. I, I don't need the 30 minute lead up all the time, uh, and I, that frustrates some people sometimes. <laughs> but uh, in the work that we do, it's fairly consistent and familiar across clients. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's rare that we get stumped with, gosh, we've just have never seen this one before. Mm -hmm. You know, we've seen intonations of it and, and inflections of it, but uh, of the same problem. But um, uh, I tend to be, you know, let's, let's start with the point and work backwards to the extent we need to. And I think our clients appreciate that too. So. I like that. Um, last question for you to talk to your colleagues or clients. And they said that you had a particular superpower, something that you're best at. What is it? I think that uh, I think they would tell you, you ask the questions nobody else was thinking of. I really think that's why people hire us. I think that, and I don't think we're being clever. We're not trying to be clever. We're not trying to trick or anything like that uh, because the answers make up the engagements that, that we enter into. Um, but we don't have a political axe to grind. We don't have an organizational climb uh, feat to accomplish. We... We are only going to be kept around in a particular client so long as we're delivering value. You know, it, it's not unusual to be sitting in a steering committee meeting with senior executives and other consultants, key stakeholders on a big transformation project, and for us to be in the room and and for that senior sponsor to, at a tough time in a project, to say, well, Mark Newhall will tell you. I mean, you know, what he means by that isn't Mark's the guru. It's... You know, we don't need, they're here so we don't make the mistakes they've seen with others. And we get there not through telling them what to do, but through challenging. Well, why do you think that? What what have you looked at? What other alternatives have you considered? Um, have you talked to these other functions? Have you pressure tested assumptions and so forth? And there's a million political reasons people don't ask those questions. But I think if we do a good job uh, on our credibility on the front end, and, and not being punitive, but being collaborative, that we earn the right to ask those tougher questions and people come to respect the answers. And I think that, uh, you know, our, our tagline is, and has been for a long time, it's kind of an informal making strategy happen. Um, the best compliment I ever got from a client was the, the CFO of Staples. He said, you know, you guys are a little scary in the beginning, small firm, uh, a bit of a larger fee than we typically would pay a smaller firm. Um, but you've really got something here with this make strategy happen thing, uh, because it's, it was evasive and elusive to us before we were very dialed into what we should we do. And through our work with you, we actually got it done. And I think about that engagement, we just, 
we asked a million questions about what were they after. And we, we certified, I think, and, and just were so specific about what success needed to look like that then we could get to it. The what to how. Yep. Well, Mark, I'll tell you, this has been really a treat. I appreciate you taking the time being a guest on the podcast. Well, thanks, Bob. You My bet. pleasure.